Well, I want to ask you today as we, uh, as we begin this teaching series on the book of Ephesians, um, how, do you, how do other people view you? Do you think about that? Do you ever think about how other people view you? Uh, when we talk about, when people talk about you, and they do, uh, what kind of things do you think come to mind when they think of you? We can be honest, these questions, and this question in particular, matters to us uh, because we have a sense of identity or a sense of how we like to think about ourselves, and some of us work harder than others on trying to convince other people how they should think of us too. And certain people's opinions matter more to us than others. Uh, when your coworkers think of you, and they do, it matters maybe a little bit to you what they think. Uh, when your friends think of about you, and they do, uh, it matters maybe a little bit more. And then your family, and uh, we hope that your family thinks about you at some points. Uh, hopefully that matters even more. And what about God? When God thinks about you, which he does, what do you think he thinks? What do you think is on his mind? Last week, I challenged you in the area of practicing some spiritual disciplines and to be intentionally carving out time to access the presence of God uh, for the work that He wants to do in us and, and through us. And there's several reasons why I know this can be difficult for us. Uh, for some, it's just a matter of discipline. Uh, for others, maybe a matter of time management. Um, but for some of us, I think the real obstacle to spending time with God is we're not sure what God thinks of us. Or we're not sure if or how we can even approach God for all kinds of reasons. I mean, if God is omniscient or God knows everything, then he knows everything. And the thought of someone knowing everything about us does not typically incline us to draw closer to them, right? It tends to make us think about pulling back or maybe how can I avoid this person or even hide from this person, I mean, picture yourself in grade 12 and imagine your whole school finding everything out about you. How likely is it that you're ever returning to school again, right? Not likely. And so when it comes to spending time with God, if we're honest, whether it's conscious or subconscious, some of us may wonder if God knows everything about me. He knows everything I've done, everything I've said, everything I've thought, everything I've looked at online, everything I've spent money on, everything I've thought about or said about everybody else. What does God think of me? And why would I come to him and try to be in his presence? Or why would he even draw near to me? Well, and this is the good news. And this is the good news of the book of Ephesians. God does know everything, and I mean everything, about each of us. And yet, as we will see today and ongoing throughout this study, he moved heaven and earth to draw near to us. So today we're going to start a two-month series in the book of Ephesians, one of Paul's great letters to a local church in the city of Ephesus, which is in modern-day Turkey. Now, as it's typical in Paul's letters, they can kind of be broken down into two parts. And the first half is really teaching on, the, on significant theological issues. Because what we believe, or what we live, we truly, or what we trip typically live, what we believe. Remember, Jesus had only um, been gone really 20 years from the time that Paul visits Ephesus. These Christians were young. 
They were new. They were living off the limited information that they had heard. Most of them were coming from Roman or Greek or Jewish cultural and religious backgrounds. And so as Paul was writing to them, he was constantly needing to clarify and to correct their theology. And that's really the shape of the first half of the letter of Ephesians. And the second half is really dealing with a number of practical issues like marriage and work and dealing with anger uh, that's in our life, which we're going to be talking about in the next number of weeks. But always after, we start with this foundation of, these the- of establishing these theological truths. And today we're going to jump right in. Uh, first, I feel like I really need to prepare you uh, for the first 10 verses that we're going to read from Ephesians chapter 1, because it is like a masterpiece. In the original Greek, it consists of, uh, verses 3 to 10 consist of 210 words all in a row with no sentences or no periods or commas or anything, a grammar teacher's worst nightmare. And it's just kind of one long, exploding, uh, gushing symphony of praise and worship. This passage offers up for us a buffet of beautiful images, ideas, and yes, a buffet, because no matter how many times you come back to this verse, you always find something new to focus on. And the significance of these verses, their meaning for our life, and are simply transformational. Uh, when we get our minds around them, and when we truly take them to heart and let them settle in, that we will be left speechless by the magnificence of the grace of God for each of us. So, in order to honor these words, um, I'm going to invite you to stand today. And if you're at home, you can stand up. Um, if you're driving, you can sit up really straight while, you, while, I, while I read this passage to you out of respect for God's words. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 to 10, and it goes like this. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to God's holy people in emphasis, the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for the adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. With all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the time reaches their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. You can be seated. 
Now, when we come to a passage like this, it can be intimidating to even try to study it because it's so thick and dense and compacted, and there's so many thoughts and ideas kind of squished into these verses all together. And so when I come to study the scriptures uh, in a passage like this, I immediately go to the verbs and think, okay, what are the verbs and what do they tell us about what the passage is trying to say? Now, there's six verbs in these verses, and if you have your Bible open, if you have your app open, you can kind of see them, and I would even invite you, if you're the kind uh, that does this, you can circle them or underline them or write them down in your notes to kind of take a look at later. Let me run through them really, really quickly for you. And as we do, we'll start to get a sense of what this passage is really all about. In verse 3, Paul says, God, he blessed us. Verse 4, he chose us. Verse 5, he predestined or destined us. Uh, Verses 7 and 8, he gave or he lavished on us. Verse 9, he made known to us. And in verse 10, he united or he unified or literally he gathered all things up. By looking at these verbs, suddenly we start to see a little bit of what's going on here. And you'll notice right away, God is the actor. And that after each one of these verses is the word us. He chose us. He lavished on us. He gave to us that you and I are the recipients. Now, if you're going to humor me just just for a minute, I want to take a second and I want to walk through all six of these very quickly. And here's why. If you're watching or listening to this today as a person of faith, and you're reluctant to pray, you're feeling tired, and your just heart is not open to the Lord right now, and maybe if you're honest, you're feeling like you're starting to lose your way a bit, then I hope that as we go through these verses that the Lord will speak to you and something will spark in your soul. And if you're not a person of faith, and for some reason you're listening to the study on Ephesians chapter 1 today, then I hope it will give you a sense of what God is like And your heart would be open to learning more about that as well. Let me just jump through them really quickly. The first, he blessed us. This is kind of an umbrella word that is used um, to describe God's general bent towards you and I. We talked about this a lot as we studied through the story of Abraham, that God is the one who blesses us. And he blessed us, it says here, with every spiritual blessing. Now, when I was in high school, I had a job one summer working at the potash mine in Sussex, above ground. And part of my job was to serve the crew working underground. Uh, They would need something from underground. They would call me. I would go to this warehouse. And in the warehouse was shelves and rows with all kinds of supplies. And my job was to find what they needed and to send it underground to them so they could continue their work in a much more spectacular way. The person of Jesus is like the spiritual warehouse for everything that you and I could ever need. And God blesses us by making Jesus available to us for everyday life. Next, he chose us. Uh, Being chosen is one of the most powerful experiences for us as humans. And it is one of the most difficult experiences when we are not chosen when we are left or left behind or left out. When I was a kid, we used to play street hockey, and the kids from the neighborhood would gather on the street, and we would have two captains, and the captains would immediately start picking people for their hockey team. They pick, This captain picked one, this picked one, and slowly the group of people who were there to play got smaller and smaller as people got chosen for each team, and you always dreaded to be the last one 
chosen. Paul says, before you were born, before the creation of the world, God chose us. And he chose us to be holy and blameless in his sight. Meaning that when we surrender our life to Christ, think about this, and become part of his family, when God looks at us, what he sees is someone who is holy and blameless. Does this come as a surprise to you? That when God looks at you, he sees you as holy and blameless? The beginning of the verse, chapter 1, Paul calls the people in Ephesus saints or holy ones. Because that is how Paul saw them. Not because they were perfect and didn't have problems. How many times have you avoided praying? Resisted God in worship? Stopped attending life group or youth group? Because something that you had done and you felt unholy and full of blame for things. And all the time when God looks at us, he no longer sees our sin, but the righteousness of Christ. Which is great news for anyone who wonders, when God looks at me, what does he think? Verse 5, he destined us or predestined us. And we're not going to jump into a big discussion about predestination today. If you're curious about that topic, read the entire book of Ephesians first. This is similar to the word chosen, but it implies that God chose us because he has a destination or a purpose for each of us. And that will become more clear as we get into the book. But the main destination that Paul points out here is that God would adopt us into his family. That that is God's hope and dream for each one of us. That we would accept his grace in our lives and to become part of his family. Meaning the defining mark on our life isn't who threw you out or who left you behind or who moved on from us. But who chose us. Who, who was it that went out and sought us out with a purpose in mind to make us free. And that even though we might be lost or separated from God, God chose us. And he comes and he finds us and offers us a seat at the table. Not as slaves, but as his children. Meaning this, that when you and I sit down to pray, when we open the scriptures, when we practice gratitude, you are a child of God who go, gets to ask your heavenly father, for the very things he's already promised to give to us. Next, verses 6 and 7. There's kind of two words here. I've collapsed them uh, into one. God has given us and lavished on us. And the theme here is grace. Grace. God's undeserved favor towards you and towards me. But there's horsepower behind this description of God's grace for us. It wasn't like some grace kind of fell out of the sky and we kind of picked it up on the ground or it hit us on the head. No, God intentionally drenched us, shot grace out of a cannon, caused grace to erupt from a volcano. An avalanche of grace came down from the mountain and it completely swallowed us up. Paul wants these Christians in Ephesus to know. That when they wake up in the morning and they face their day, whether it's a stressful meeting, whether they feel like they failed, whether they're struggling with the stress of life, whether they're dealing with a difficult encounter, there will be enough grace for them in that moment. Because God has given more than we could ever ask or imagine. Now, in verse 7, he wrote this. We have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of sins with, from the riches of God's grace. 
even though God knows everything about us. He offers his son so that we can be redeemed, to buy back from the ways of sin and death. The word redeemed is a common word in Paul's day. Um, in the ancient world, the only way for you to become, uh, uh, stop being a slave and go from being slave to being free was for someone to pay enough money or to redeem you from slavery and to set you free. This is the picture that Paul uses to describe what God has done for you and I in Christ. What he's made available to each and every one of us. Last Sunday, I encouraged all of us to think about spiritual disciplines or practices um, to apply that effort to stay rooted in, in, in the Lord these days. And every time I preach a message like that, I recognize the potential for that to turn into kind of a new form of legalism, meaning we'll start to think that, hey, I read my Bible, and so now God loves me more. He's more likely to answer my prayers. He's more likely to make that girl asked out on a date say yes. All these kind of things. We turn it into kind of a God owes me because I've done something good for him. Did you, as we read through these verses, verses 3 through 10, at any point get the impression that God's love for us was incomplete or lacking in any way? Did you get the impression at any point that it might need to get topped up by something that we did? Or to put it more bluntly, did you get the impression that God's grace had anything to do with our performance? No. Not once. Then how goofy is it for you and I to think that because I read my Bible for a few days in, the, in a row, that somehow that is going to make God love me more or make more of his grace available to me. Do you realize how freeing this is? That all of our efforts to pray, uh, to read scripture, um, to practice gratitude, to be silent in the Lord's presence, to find opportunities to serve, can simply just be a response to everything that he has done for us and a means by which we get to access that grace again and again and again. Two more. Uh, Verse 9, he made known to us. Now, in my little immature imagination, I, when I read these verses, I picture Paul speaking them to the congregation in Ephesus. And when he gets to this point, I picture him leaning in and dropping his voice a little bit to them and saying something like this. God has made known to you. Don't you see? This is what God is like. He has blessed us and chosen us. He has lavished his grace upon us. He has redeemed us for you. That Paul wants more than anything for these people to know that what they have witnessed in Christ is God revealing his heart, his character, his purpose, and his intentions to each and every one of us. And he wants that for this multi-ethnic church family of his who are all coming from different backgrounds with different ideas about what God is like and what it might take to please him or how he might respond when we come into his presence. Paul wants them to know it's been made known. Jesus showed us exactly what God was like. And today, if you're not sure about Christianity or you thought you were a Christian but you're not so sure, then I simply invite you to open the Gospels and just read and watch so carefully the person of Jesus. What he says and how he treats people. And as you do, you will discover God making known to you 
what he is really like. All right, last one, verse 10. That Paul, or God united or unified, or literally the picture of arms gathering up together. Do any of you get the sense that things in our world uh, might be a mess today? Maybe a little? Paul says when Christ came, he started this thing in motion, his kingdom, putting, of putting things back together again, once and for all. It is not finished yet, but he is in the midst of doing it as we speak. Meaning all the weariness and the exhaustion that our world is feeling is soon to come to an end when Jesus will gather everything up in his arms and bring it under his control. And oh, how we ache for that day. So as we get ready to conclude here today, just by looking at these six words, which just kind of reveal to us the grace of God, let me come back to you again and ask you this question. When God thinks about you, which he does, what does he think? In these six verses, we see this expression from God's heart. And I hope it's become clear to each and every one of us that he thinks and moves his grace towards us again and again. I'm going to invite the team to come back up on the stage as we get ready to conclude our service here today. As we get further into this letter, uh, the book of Ephesians, we will see that Paul starts writing to this church about this resounding theme of God's grace again and again and again. He's going to say all kinds of other things. He's going to talk about unity. He's going to talk about how it is that we behave. He's going to talk about witness. He's going to talk about spiritual warfare. But the foundation of all of it must be built upon the grace of God. Because these people were just like you and I today. They came from different family dynamics, different religious backgrounds, different marriage situations. Some were rich, some were poor. Some had prestigious careers, some were slaves. Some were loyal to Rome, to Greece, to Israel, and just like us, they were tempted to find their meaning and identity in all of these things first, and then in Christ second, or third, or tenth. And Paul knows if we want to find the life of freedom that Christ offers to us and to discover his purpose in life, it's the starting place is discovering again the grace of God made available to us in the person of Jesus. Next week, we're going to continue in chapter 1. Let me pray for you. Lord, today, we pray for the ability and the capacity, Lord, for your spirit to be at work in our hearts, that our imaginations might grow to comprehend even more profoundly the effort and the extent and the wealth that is available to us in your grace that can transform our lives once and for all and then again and again each day as we entrust our lives to you. Lord, we pray today that as we think about your grace, it would shape our identity and that first and foremost before anything else, we would remember that we are your daughters and that we are your sons bought at great price for your purposes in this world. And we thank you in Christ's name. Amen.